If you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We are continuing on in our series, In Accord, How the Gospel and Godliness Come Together Today, Focusing on the Grace of God. In many ways, I feel a little not apprehensive. I don't know the right word. I guess I feel I want to really handle this well because this text is very personal. Not only in my life, but this is the personal testimony of the Apostle Paul. And uh, I spent a considerable amount of time this week and last week trying to just absorb what Paul was trying to say and the difference that God's grace made in his life, the difference it's made in my life, and the difference God's grace can make in anyone's life. Here's how Paul related his story to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, You may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Wow. Father, thank you for this very personal testimony of your apostle and how through his life you teach us much about how grace produces godliness and how the gospel and godliness come together in accord in those who believe the gospel and are transformed by the good news, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I thank you, God, that this is a work you can do in any of us for the praise of your glory. This is what happens when grace and godliness come together in accord in a person's life. May you help us to learn from this today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was uh, reading a piece by Matt Woodley, who's the managing editor of PreachingToday.com, and he was telling about how in Ann Arbor, Michigan, he said it's the most interesting museum anywhere on the planet. The facility run by GFK Custom Research goes under the informal name of the Museum of Failed Products. Now, at first sight, he said the shelves in the aisles look just like a supermarket, except there's only one of each item, and there are thousands of these things. And he said, you won't find these items in a real supermarket either because they are failures. They are products withdrawn from sale after a few weeks or months because nobody bought them. He said, this is the consumer capitalism's graveyard. It's the only place on the planet where you'll find Clairol's A Touch of Yogurt Shampoo. 
alongside Gillette's equally unpopular for oily hair only. A few feet from a now empty bottle of Pepsi AM breakfast cola. The museum is home to discounted brands of caffeinated beer, to TV dinners that were put out by the toothpaste manufacturer Colgate. Who, who was thinking there? The two Fortune Snookies, a short-lived line of fortune cookies for dogs, to self-heating soup cans that explode in the customer's face, to packets of breath mints that had to be withdrawn because they looked exactly like little packs of crack cocaine. Now, and there's so many others. He said, if the museum has a central message, it's that failure isn't a rarity. It's the norm. For, ver for every insanely successful product, such as an iPhone or a Big Mac, there's a whole host of ideas that only a mother could love. And according to some estimates, the failure rate for new products is as high as 90%. 90% failure rate. Because it takes so many factors coming together for a new product to be successful. You know, I was thinking about that this week when I was reading through what Paul had said to Timothy about godliness. Do you know what the failure rate is for anyone who tries to live a, a new, obedient, holy, godly life in Christ Jesus in their own strength? 100%. The failure rate for people who try to live a godly life in their own strength is 100% because it cannot be done. Only God can produce a godly life. And Paul said, by his grace, he will do it. A godly life was a life that Paul was called to live. Peter his contemporary, said that God has given us everything we need for a godly life. 2 Peter 1 verse 3, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. That everything we need through the knowledge of Christ is what Paul called the gospel of grace. God pouring out on us this grace by his own glory and goodness. That's the grace Paul was writing to Timothy about. And in this section of Paul's letter, he gives his own personal testimony as to the power of God's grace in his own life. He said in verse 13, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Godliness is to be God-like. It doesn't mean that we will be God ever. We're not, nor should we desire to be. But we become God-like, meaning that we have more of his heart, more of his mind, more of his thoughts, more of his word, more of his responses, more of his worldview, more of him living in us and through us. That the longer we walk with God, the more he produces his life in us so that we look like him. God doesn't look like us, but God is wanting us to look more like him. 
Godliness is the product of God graciously working out his life and the low lives of those who know him and who by faith are seeking to walk obediently with him. Paul told Timothy later in chapter 3 of the same book, 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, he said, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. The mystery from which true godliness springs is great. The word mystery that Paul used, W.E. Vine said, it's a word which, can, which means that which can be known only by divine revelation at a time and in a way chosen by God and only in those who are illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Normally we think of a mystery as knowledge withheld. But in the scriptures, mystery is knowledge revealed. It is knowledge revealed by God. The mystery of godliness revealed in the gospel. It's what Paul was talking about when he said to the Colossian church in Colossians 1 verse 26, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. The mystery revealed, this idea of godliness being produced by God in us by his grace. Paul told Timothy, it's the mystery of the gospel revealed that God used to graciously save a sinner like him. And Paul said, this is what I used to be. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. I was a blasphemer, he said. I slandered, I reviled, I defamed and defrauded the very person of God Revealed in his son. I was a persecutor. I sought to destroy the very church which is his body and the people who were his followers. I was a violent man, literally an insolent bully, seeking to violently injure the people of God. I was ignorant. I did all this believing I was serving God and doing what God wanted, but I knew nothing about God or what he wanted. I was ignorant. And I was unbelieving. I thought I believed God, but in reality, I didn't even know him. Even when he stood in front of me in human flesh, I rejected him. God told me who he was, and I didn't believe him. As Pastor Phil reminded us last week, Paul understood that he didn't believe him because, as Phil reminded us, right doctrine means right living. Paul said, I wasn't living right, so I knew that I wasn't believing right. I didn't know who he was. The gospel and godliness were not in accord in my life. And Paul said, that's what I used to be. But by God's grace in the gospel, I'm not that man anymore. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. God's unmerited favor was super abundantly poured out on me, Paul said, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul said, I'm a new man in which God is now living by his grace. So he's poured out that grace on me, and now I have faith in this Jesus that I used to blaspheme, 
That faith is the gift of this God by grace. And now I have the love of Jesus in my heart. I love this Jesus. I love this God now that I know. I love his word and his gospel. I love his people and I love the lost. And all of that love has come from God. It's by his grace. He abundantly poured that into my life. I'm a man and now whom God's grace and godliness are in accord. And Paul makes the case if God can bring grace and godliness together in me, the worst of sinners, and he can do this work of grace and godliness in anyone. And Paul reminds us God pours out his grace through the gospel that we might live in accord with his godliness. How is this grace and godliness seen to come together in a person? In Paul's life, he said it came together this way. It was seen in the way God appointed me to his service. And it was seen in the way God displayed in me his patience. We see God's grace and godliness come together in accord in the way God appoints us to his service. Paul said in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. God's grace transforms sinners into servants. Vincent Damon Furnier is an American singer, songwriter, actor, whose famous global career spans more than 50 years. And you're thinking, who? You probably know him by the name Alice Cooper. His shows featured guillotines, electric chairs, fake blood, deadly snakes, baby dolls, swords fighting, which earned him the title Godfather of Shock Rock. Steve Beard, in an article about Alice Cooper's journey of faith in Good News Magazine, said at the height of his fame, his worldwide fame, Alice Cooper drank a bottle of whiskey a day. But the bottle almost destroyed his marriage to Cheryl, his wife of 25 years at the time. So she invited him to church, and he started coming. And he said he felt as if God was speaking to him every Sunday. Now a believer... Cooper takes the opportunity to speak to curious fellow musicians about the reality of the devil and the change in his life through the gospel. He said, I've talked to some big stars about this, some pretty horrific characters, and you'd be surprised, he says. The ones you think are the furthest gone are the ones who are most apt to listen and believe. For all you heavy metal fans out there, all two of you, and those of the rest of us who are repulsed by the very thought of heavy metal, I think we would all agree that Alice Cooper is the last guy you'd expect to be out there sharing the gospel of God's grace and godliness. In fact, when people hear it, as I did the first time, I said, Alice Cooper <laughs> is a Christian? But the truth is, God's grace displayed in the gospel is still transforming sinners like him and sinners like me. 
into becoming servants for his kingdom. In Paul's testimony to Timothy, he said, that was the grace that transformed him. Paul said he thanked Jesus as Lord for the transforming grace poured out abundantly in him. He said in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. God has given me strength, Paul said. He has considered me trustworthy and he has appointed me to his service. And people who knew Saul of Tarsus and the Apostle Paul, when they heard he would become a Christian, they said, say what? Who? Saul of Tarsus. Paul the Pharisee has become a Christian? Yeah, more than that, he's a preacher. No way. Do you remember how people responded when they heard that Saul the Pharisee persecutor had become Paul the powerful preacher? You remember in Acts 9? God tells Ananias to go to the home of Judas on Straight Street, and he said, I want you to share the gospel with Paul. And Ananias said, say what? Now I want you to go to Judas's house and tell this guy Paul about me and the gospel. Paul, the guy who came to Damascus to arrest people like me, who's throwing us in prison and overseeing our trials and our execution, this is the guy you want me to go talk to? He's not the man he used to be. My grace is transforming him. And I want you to go tell him how I'm going to use him to be a servant in my kingdom. You remember when Paul went out to preach in Damascus about Christ and the gospel, Acts 9, verse 21, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And isn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. How about in Jerusalem, Acts 9, verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. How'd you like to come to church some morning and see people slamming the door shut because they want to let you in? They were afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus... He had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. You see, if you were a search committee for a church pastor reading Paul's resume, you'd never hire the guy. But Paul said, I'm not that man anymore. God's grace has transformed me. I become a servant of this king. People, I I know what that feels like. You know, over the years, I've never shared the dirty laundry of my life because I don't think it brings glory to God, so I don't do it. But I'm just telling you, if you knew every detail of my past before I met Jesus, you wouldn't want me to be your pastor either. In fact, when I became a Christian, when I became a Christian, people who knew me heard that and they said, Larry Adams has become a Christian? Are you serious? 
More than that, he's become a preacher. No way. No way. When Carla and I went back some years ago to New England for my 20th high school reunion, the word about what had happened in my life was getting around and people could not believe it. So when it was time for the meal, I got up and prayed for the meal and I took a moment to share my testimony. Afterwards, these people that I had gone to high school with, they were pulling me aside saying, what happened to you? What happened to you? And I said, I'll tell you what happened to me. God's grace and the gospel happened to me. And what God's gospel and grace has done to me, he can do it in you. Because when God's grace and God's gospel comes together in godliness in a person, that person's different. I'm not the man I used to be. God's grace and the gospel is transforming. Paul told Timothy that transformation from sinner to saint, from persecutor to preacher, from selfish blasphemer to servant of God is all by God's grace. He said, the Lord has given me strength an inward enabling strength to be and to do what on my own I never could. He considered me trustworthy, reliable, faithful to be entrusted with the gospel and the service to him. I know just enough Greek to be dangerous and I'm, I'm not much better with the English language, but what's important here, there's a passive form of this verbal adjective that Paul uses when he says, consider me trustworthy. And what's significant about that in the passive form, what Paul's describing is, it isn't just what I do, it's all about what I have become. I'm living different because I am different. I'm a new man. And God appointed me to his service. Literally, he counted to lead the way before the mind, which is a very interesting phrase. Paul was telling Timothy, God counted me worthy in him to be trusted with service to him before my mind or anyone else's mind could even consider the possibility of such a thing. 1 Timothy 13, I was, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. A remarkable statement coming from Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the strict observer of the law, the fearless defender of God, the fearless defender of the Mosaic law. Paul said, I thought I was a righteous man, but I was in reality an ignorant unbeliever. Can people be very religious, even zealous for God, but actually be living in ignorance and unbelief? Yeah. Yeah, do you remember last week when Pastor Phil taught when it comes to obedience to God, there are two extremes, the legalists who say you better obey God or else we obey to earn God's love. Or the antinomians, the anti-law people, it's all about grace from a loving God, so live as you please because God in his love would never make demands for our obedience. Remember those two extremes? Such people can be zealous for God, but as Phil reminded us, they share a common error. 
They don't know rightly who God is or the love of God. They are living in ignorance and unbelief in many ways. They don't have a correct view of Jesus' love and his grace. So what can happen is what Paul wrote to the Roman Christians about in Romans 10, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. What Paul said concerning himself and his fellow Jews could be said of many who follow any religion. They are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. It could be said the same for many Christians who have a very distorted view of God, a very distorted view of God's love, and a very distorted view of how God works in people. And they could be zealous for those ideas, but they don't align with the true God of the Bible or the Scriptures. You see, what all of us need from the most lost sinner to the most self-righteous saint is for God to pour out on us his grace along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. That grace and godliness comes together in accord in us. And God lives this godliness out through us. He changes us. People, we can't do this in our own strength, but God can. And as Paul told Timothy, he's still doing it by grace in the lives of those who believe the gospel. Not only in how God appoints us to his service, but we see grace and godliness come together in accord in the way God displays his patience in us. Paul said in verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory, forever and ever. Amen. People, God is not like us. God is seeking us to become more like him. He's making us that way. And unlike us, God is not in a hurry. He's patient. He's immensely patient. I was reading a piece by Lytton Weeks, an article that was on NPR, National Public Radio. The article was called Impatient Nation. I can't wait for you to read this. <laughs> And he said, we have become an impatient nation. We want quick answers to complex problems. He said, we speed date. We eat fast food. We use the self-checkout lines in grocery stores. We try the one weekend diet. We pay extra for overnight shipping. We honk when the light turns green. We thrive or dive on quarterly earnings reports. We speak in half sentences. We start things but don't finish. We tweet stories in 140 characters or less and complain they are too long. 
We cut corners, take shortcuts. We don't even text, we TXT. We want to find the shortest lines, the fastest lane, and the quickest internet. Linton Weeks is right. We are an impatient people. We want what we want, and we want it now. We expect people and companies to perform on our timetable. And we even expect that same thing from God. Don't think so? Just listen to what people say when God isn't operating when they think he ought to. But God isn't like us. He's patient. Paul said he's immensely patient. And we should be very grateful for that. You know, when you read Paul's story, it's hard not to say, God, why did you let that go on like that? Why did you let him torment people like that? Why didn't you just take him out? Because God is patient. Do you know why he's patient? Because thank God, he doesn't see us just for what we are. He sees us that by his grace, what we will yet become. And God is very patient to do what he needs to do to bring us to that place. Paul said in verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. This is a trustworthy saying, reliable, true, deserves full acceptance. It was a phrase that in the first century had the idea of you ought to receive this like a gift that you got from a king or a queen or a prince or a princess because God in his royalty is offering you this kind of grace. You ought to reliably accept this and take it to the bank. This is real, what he's offering. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Why would you do that? Verse 16. For that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. God saves sinners like Paul and me and you so that in us, he can display his immense patience, the working of his gospel and his glory and other people that they might see it and believe it and receive him and eternal life. Paul said he has immense patience. He's long-suffering. And he does, it, he does it to make us an example. A pattern is the word. A form, an underlying pattern that others can see. In the patience of God, this is what God produces in the life where grace and godliness come together. And if God has done that in a guy like Paul, then perhaps God will have the patience to do that in me and in others because God doesn't see us just for who we are now but for what we will be because of him 
You remember it's the same thing that David wrote about when his life was transformed by this grace? Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth. A hymn of praise to our God. Look at this. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Peter also talked of God's patience displayed in believers that leads others to salvation. But we need to respond to the gracious offer of the gospel before that patience is withdrawn. Remember what Peter said in 2 Peter 3, verse 8? Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Peter went on to say in verse 14, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of them of these matters, these matters of grace. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. I don't know why, but somehow it helps me to know that the great apostle Peter also found some of Paul's writings so deep, he didn't grab it the first time either. He had to go back and think through this mystery again, this mystery of God's patience and what he achieves through that in salvation and transformation how he patiently brings people to a place of believing the gospel and bringing it together in godliness and accord in a person's life. He said in verse 17, Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned beyond your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Paul said in verse 15 of 1 Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. This godly life, this life of God lived out in us is not for our glory, it's for his. It's not about how godly we've become. It's how much of God is seen in our lives. God's patience with sinners is on display 
And that's why Paul said in verse 17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. May this invisible God, this eternal invisible God, who's now making himself visible in me, receive all the glory and honor. You know, there were some, probably in the antinomian group, who concluded, well, if I'm a great sinner and God's patience makes his glory shine in me, then why not keep on sinning so God's grace can shine even more? And Paul addressed that notion in the strongest of terms in his letter to the Romans in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Not, you got to be kidding. Are you out of your mind? We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? His death was our death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. His burial was our burial. That old life is gone. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. His death was our death, his burial our burial, now his life is our life. We don't seek to live holy, godly, obedient lives to earn more of God's grace or to be saved. As Pastor Phil reminded us last week, we seek to live holy, godly, obedient lives because we are saved, because we've been given his grace and now we're living in response to this grace out of this amazing gift that God has given. He has saved us from our sins. The worst of sinners like me have been saved. How can we live in that any longer? A godly life is both the response and the evidence that we have believed the gospel and that Jesus has come to display his glory and his life in us. And people, that's in many ways just the beginning. Because you see, it isn't how you start well that matters only. It's how you finish well. We need to stay strong in this. It was the Apostle Paul who later in 1 Timothy 4 is going to say that we need to train ourselves to be godly because godliness has benefit not just for this life but in the life to come. So Paul says to Timothy in verse 18, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well. If you think Satan's going to stand by and just let you live a godly life for Christ to display his glory in you, you got another thing coming. There's a battle ensuing here. So hold on to the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected, and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Timothy, there's a battle going on. And so you need to hold on to the faith. Remember where you came from. Remember the things prophesied about you. Remember why you are where you are. Fight the battle well. Hold on to faith. Hold on to a good conscience. Otherwise, you can end up with a shipwrecked faith, just like Hymenaeus and Alexander. I don't have time today, unfortunately, to trace out those two men. You don't want to go down the path they went. 
They become blasphemers. Can you imagine? Here are a couple of guys who once proclaimed the glories of God and this Christ who now have rejected that and are actually ones reviling this God and this Christ. The mouth once used to praise God is now used to serve the evil one. Now they're either proving they were never really saved or they're in deep rebellion against God and need to repent. So Paul said, I've handed them over to Satan. A phrase which means an apostolic discipline where such people were put out of the church and out of its protective spiritual covering, making them more vulnerable to Satan's attacks in hopes that such a one will see the error of their blasphemy, repent, and turn to God. So that they will taught not to be taught not to blaspheme. These steps are remedial. They have a teaching intent that the one who has rejected God and his word may learn the full consequence of such rebellion. And they may come back to God. Fight the battle well, Paul said. There is much at stake. In your life, let God's immense patience be seen that others will receive it and believe. God's grace and grace alone is what saves people through faith. And a gospel that transforms them into godly servants for the glory of his kingdom and the glory of his name. And he's doing it in some pretty surprising ways. Russell Moore, who was the president of the Ethics, Religion, Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention, was recounting a memorable conversation he had with the late evangelical theologian, Carl F.H. Henry. As Moore and some of his friends were lamenting the miserable shape of the church, they were asking Dr. Henry, if he saw any hope in the coming generation of evangelicals. And Dr. Henry said, well, of course. There is hope for the next generation of evangelicals. But the leaders of the next generation might not be coming from the current evangelical establishment. They are probably still pagans. Who knew that Saul of Tarsus was to be the great apostle to the Gentiles? Who knew that God would raise up a C.S. Lewis or a Charles Coulson? They were unbelievers who once saved by the grace of God were mighty warriors for the faith. Russell Moore went on to say, the next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin fish bumper sticker. The next Charles Wesley might be a misogynist, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist right now. The next Billy Graham might be passed out drunk in a fraternity house right now. The next Charles Spurgeon might be making posters for a gay pride march right now. The next Mother Teresa might be managing an abortion clinic right now. Because you see, God doesn't see us just for who we are now. He sees us for what by his grace we will yet become. No wonder Paul said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. 
who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. He poured out this grace on me so that the worst of sinners could become a display for his amazing grace and glory, his patience. People, this is the work God is doing in us. And I can tell you confidently, if God can do it in me, he can do it in anybody. Do you know this God today? Do you know this kind of grace that meets you where you are and brings together grace and godliness in accord in your life? He's the one who makes it happen. He did it in Paul. He's done it in me, so many of you, and he can do it in anyone, which is why we are to be out there sharing this good news and praying that God will do the work that only God can do. No wonder Paul said, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And God's people said, God, it's all of you. We can't do this. I have no more ability to be godly now than I did before. The grace you pour out allows me to train to be godly. I can pursue the things to be godly, but I can't be godly without you. None of us can. Thank you for bringing grace and godliness together in accord in Paul and using his life as a testimony that you can do it in us and in anyone. This is the gospel of grace. The power of God for salvation to all who believe. Thank you for seeing us not just for where we are, but what we yet can be. By your grace, for your glory. And we ask it today in Jesus' name. Amen.